0: Hey, Kathy. Hi, Emily. <laughs> you just got back yeah. from your trip.
1: I just got back. I got back on Saturday. Yes. It was 15 days of crazy, yes. so much fun, weirdest start to the school year and the weirdest pandemic year ever. But I'm back. I'm back home now. And I kind of want to do it again at some point. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. I want to, too, if I can get my husband OK with wh- hang out with a three-year-old and a new puppy without yeah. me which I'll is be like a
1: whole other conversation about the new puppy
0: but we'll. oh we'll yeah we didn't even together. talk about that yet welcome back to a special bonus episode of anti-social studies where i have another great conversation about history with my APUS history teacher kathy cluck you can also check out the video versions we've divided these up into smaller topics on youtube at youtube.com slash anti-social studies enjoy So we wanted to talk today, because you visited the last leg of your trip, you visited um, a lot of, or kind of like more civil rights era right. stuff, so what, what did you see?
1: Uh, I came back through, as I was coming back in, um, into the south, I, I wanted to make sure I stopped and spent some time in Memphis. Uh, I wanted to go to the Lorraine Motel, which is where Martin Luther King was assassinated, and, and they have built the new civil rights museum, or a civil rights museum, it's probably not new anymore it's kept it the same as it was on the day that king was assassinated i didn't go in the museum because of covid um, but i did go to to the motel um, took some pictures did some video of of that moment and as i as i left memphis i was like as i was kind of walking around there was also i passed just around the corner there's a site of um, the Memphis Massacre in the 1860s, I think. I just talked about that. And, and it's, I mean, it was just around the corner from the Civil Rights Museum. And it sort of reiterated the fact that, man, this city has had so much pain and cities in the South. I mean, I, I tend to associate Memphis with King getting assassinated. But prior to that, it was this massacre, you know, during and after the Civil War and reconstruction and, it just reminded me of how sort of drawn out the the civil rights struggle is and still is and is still ongoing, but it's not it's not just a one moment in time history.
0: Yeah, that's it's funny you mentioned that because I literally last week in my you my on level U.S. history class we're going through a really quick review of the first half of U.S. history, and um, we spent a whole day on Reconstruction because I was like I, I legitimately think to understand modern social justice issues, that reconstruction is like the 10 or 12 most important years you could study, Absolutely, Because it's exactly when it's like, we had an opportunity, I don't know how we would have done it successfully, but we had an opportunity to try to like, I don't know, have some honest conversations and really figure out how to move forward, but then we didn't. And yeah, I mean, I was talking to them about. We looked at the New Orleans um, kind of riots, where the black men were going to vote on the new constitution, and then were attacked. And then Memphis, if I'm correct, wasn't it? There were like black Union soldiers still in Memphis to protect the freed men there, right? Yeah. And then it was it was like an altercation between them and police officers, white police officers, I think, in Memphis.
1: And again, it it just just the idea of of the black community and the police community. That, that history, I was, I was talking about this last week with my classes too, that that is not a recent thing and it's not a new thing. And, and when we talk about civil rights in America, it, it doesn't start with Dr. King in the 1950s. It, it goes back. And even, even the fact that the very first police forces in America were slave recapture squads, um, that that's kind of the history there's there's just this deep embedded history of fractured relationship between kind of the policing agencies and and blacks in america and it's not going to be anything that we can solve or fix easily
0: yeah I like we, we both were created almost in opposition to each other like and it's not we're not saying that like today that's how they want to be built right. but it's like when they were built it was built for this purpose to be and this is the other thing is i have my kids read the um 13th amendment like we read the 13th amendment and i'm like what's in here that's really important which is like right we abolish slavery except in conditions of servitude or exactly. i mean except in um as punishment for a crime mm-hmm. and it's like when you realize that i mean this whole um this whole stereotype today of like the the black male criminal right is we it's it that's success that's success for the system that's what they were trying to do in the late genders they were like well we can't put them back on a plantation as an enslaved person but if they're in prison we can then hire them out to s- i mean it just it's really crazy
1: it it helps you i mean it doesn't it doesn't solve it doesn't solve anything but it helps you understand kind of the deep-seatedness of of racial issues in america today when we when we realize we're not we're just not talking about something that happened last month or whatever it's, it goes back so much longer
0: let me ask and I, I didn't give you advance notice that we were going to talk about this but now that you're saying this i'm wondering so there's all this controversy now about certain states incorporating the 1619 project yes. into their costumes have you heard about this
1: um i've heard of yeah i've i've Heard about the controversy, yeah.
0: Yeah. So okay, I use the 1619 project in my use history classes. Like I assign them some of the podcast episodes, some of the essays, they're really amazing. I also do it and then I show them the historical debate. Because there is some legitimate issues with like some historians say, well, you go a little too far in some of your yeah. ultimate declarations, but like 95% of it is really good. But now there's this whole thing. I think the the White House is like investigating whether because I think the state of California is now incorporating it incorporating it into their public schools and it's like to me it just it just seems like yeah, we've just always had this issue of like especially as history teachers like it shouldn't be a political act to talk about the history of slavery or the black experience, right?
1: Well, and that's that's the thing that the fact that it has become political to try to study the history um, is is saddening to me mm-hmm. that that it, we're uh, I I don't ever want to tell a kid how to think I don't ever want to tell a kid that they should think a certain way or they shouldn't think a certain way that I want to present all the information so they have the ability I mean the whole the whole idea that I have the ability as a teacher to to indoctrinate my students yeah. Um, that to me i'm like have you have you met 16 year olds they, they, they don't, listen don't listen to me yeah that they 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 don't listen to me they i can't i can't indoctrinate anybody and it reminds me of like nazi germany when teachers had to take loyalty oaths and mm-hmm. teachers could be could be fired if if they were teaching a certain way and that i that idea that that i get that we have influence but to think that i can indoctrinate kids that's that's insulting to kids. It's like they have the ability to think for themselves. At 16 yeah. years old, I guarantee you, they have the ability to decide for themselves. My job is to present the information mm-hmm. um, by not including stuff that is ugly in our history, I think is disingenuous. It's, it, it goes against what I'm supposed to do as a teacher.
0: Well, it's yeah. like, that's indoctrinated. Like, that's the thing is like, well, now you are indoctrinating them to a different reality. It's like, if you, cause I remember even the state of Texas a few years ago when the college board came out with their new AP US history standards, right? The state of Texas was like, these promote anti-American values and blah, blah, blah. And they were like, they don't even mention the founding fathers. And it was like, yes, yes, they did. But they <laughs> they did. I read through the whole thing and then I wrote a letter to the state legislature that got thrown in a trash can somewhere. But, um, but it was like, because we were emphasizing people of color and other experiences that weren't the dominant narrative. And so it's just annoying to me that, because it's like, well, if you say then, well, you're talking too much about slavery. I'm like, well, that's, that's a viewpoint then too. You're trying to indoctrinate kids into this, like just super rags to riches, American dream sort of narrative. And it's gotta be somewhere in the middle, like, so.
1: To think that you can study American history without studying slavery is, is an incomplete study of american history
0: yeah i've just been having these conversations with my kids because you know like you said they're smart and it's like they know when you're not telling them something Um, they they hear the news maybe through osmosis but they hear what's being talked about out there and so they want to know and to me too it's like if you're worried about a history teacher indoctrinating your kid this is probably gonna get me in trouble somewhere, but I'm like, okay. If my kid had to be indoctrinated by someone, I'm like a highly educated teacher. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know. It's like they're gonna be—they're indoctrinated by their peers, they're by their parents, by what they see on TV and Instagram celebrities. I'm like, okay, God forbid they get a little bit of wisdom from people whose job it is
1: and, and it's just—it's another—it's another source of information. Yeah, and, and kids filter it, and it, it's. It, it's sort of that same world where you go do you do you want your kids to only make decisions based on one source of information that's not going to serve them well ultimately yeah. as adults um, you like i i I need to do a better job of gathering multiple sources and coming to my own conclusion, trusting my own intellect, trusting my own brain and ability to make a decision rather than just listening to one source or one. Um, you know one particular kind of point of view you want to hear multiple that's what gives you that that degree of education that level of education to
0: make yeah
1: related decisions
0: and this is interesting to me because like and we're going off on a tangent but i don't even care i love this um, like so my first teaching job was at an islamic school in austin so all my students were muslim the vast majority of the staff were muslim and obviously all the parents and the uh, the vast majority of the kids were either they were born in a muslim country or their parents were so it was a very like kind of either first generation or second generation and you know i had like 8th grade us history then and we were time at the constitution and that was the year that we were we were debating like marijuana legalization of marijuana they were debating same sex marriage becoming legal and i just remember thinking like i can't not talk to them about this because like i i understood it was going to make parents uncomfortable right because you know depending on how you read the quran right it basically says that being gay is not a thing you should do not all students ascribe to that but still um and i just remember like the argument i made was exactly what you're saying i'm like look they they're gonna live in this world like they're living here they're hearing about it they at least need to know they can ultimately decide whatever they want but they at least need to know what's being said Otherwise they're just walking around blind. Like they have no idea. So yeah, I'm amazed I didn't get fired. I mean, it was an amazing school. I had a great, but I, I think back, I was a first year teacher. So I just did stuff. I had like, I had no team, no textbook. I was like, yeah, let's just talk about Israel Palestine with a bunch of sixth graders and like it. Oof, yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed. I'm amazed. I made it through. God bless that school. But um, anyway. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a good, I think that's a good starter to then what we what we also wanted to talk about, which is a few key points kind of in the civil rights movement, um, including I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Emmett Till, um, who is someone that I I sort of by choice have not dived deep into that story. I know what I need to know to teach it and I on purpose have maybe avoided. Um, And then I also want to talk about John Lewis. And I know you and I both know some stuff about him. So I guess that's our nice little intro and why we need to talk about this stuff.
1: Well, okay. Bill to me is is uh, he well. The backstory is that he was a 14 year old kid uh, from Chicago in 1955, I believe. He had come down to visit his cousins in Mississippi, a town called Money, Mississippi. Um, he was a black kid, and he was visiting his cousins. His his grandfather was a sharecropper, so they were really poor. And one day he and his cousin walked into town to like the general store. Um, and the general store is owned by a husband and wife, um, Carolyn and Roy Bryant. And they walked into the general store, bought whatever, didn't buy whatever. But as they walked out, Emmett said something to Carolyn or there was some sort of interaction. And, and he was a 14-year-old kid. And as you and I know, 14-year-old kids, they're just cocky. Um, 14-year-old boys are just cocky and kind of trying to figure out who they are. So there was some interaction between Emmett and Carolyn, who was a white woman, um, that she took offense to. And it was either as big as he said, something to the effect and I don't know what it was but some report said that he said don't be scared baby I've been with white girls before um which sounds like such a 14 year old boy
0: it thing. does I was gonna say I was like man out out of this like super tense context I'm like yes. oh I've I've had 14 year old boys say yeah. insane yeah. things in my presence yeah to me or in my presence where I'm like wow I don't understand why you would think that was okay yes,
1: yeah exactly but they're 14 they don't They think everything's okay, Mm -hmm. the more inappropriate, the better, but it could have been as egregious as that, or he could have smiled at her, whistled at her, winked at her, Um, I don't know that we really
0: know, but she- we never know, right? I mean, we're never going to know what that interaction was really like, and I think one of the things, just before you even keep going, is like, even the most egregious version of that narrative is like, Okay, you does, know, that, that interaction should have then just ended there, yes. and, and it could have easily just ended there, yeah.
1: It could have, but she took offense and she told her husband, and that night, first of all, Emmett's cousin, um, who was with him, who was from the South, was like, we gotta get out of here, we gotta get out of here. And so they went home and that night, um, about two in the morning, uh, they were at their granddad's house and somebody knocked on their door and, and allegedly, from, from everything I know, there were two men and they asked the grandfather, they said, where's the boy that talked to the woman today? And um, uh, the cousin was like, don't go out there, don't go out there. And Emmett went out there um, and they grabbed him and they took him in the truck. And apparently there was somebody sitting in the truck, which we think might've been Carolyn Bryant, um, but oh, the, they- The woman? Yes, the woman. Oh, interesting. Um, so so Emmett went with these two men um, and and he was never seen alive again uh his body was found i think a couple of days later he had been beaten um he had been killed his body had been dumped in the river um, the Tallahatchie river in Mississippi he had a cotton gin fan like this giant 50 pound cotton gin fan that had been tied around his his neck to weight the body down Um, And, and when, when his body was discovered, uh, his mother came down from Chicago to claim the body and the body went back to Chicago and she had an open casket funeral. And he, uh, the, the mortician undertaker said, do you want me to touch up his body, his face? And she said, no, you can't fix that. And at his funeral in Chicago, it was open casket and um, there were photographers there, from I believe Jet magazine, and they took photos of his his face and his body in the casket. And it doesn't look like a human face. It looks like Play-Doh because the the bones in his face had been broken and smashed, and it just doesn't look recognizable immediately. And when those photos were published, um, it to me it it sort of is the, I always start with kind of the modern civil rights movement with the with the murder of Emmett Till because when those photos were published it's like people around the country and around the world really saw what it meant to be black in the south and, and to to add further issue to it the two men were arrested they were charged with his murder um, at the trial which was held in a nearby town all the jurors were white males um, the defense attorney uh, and, and during the trial, Mose Wright, who was Emmett's grandfather, this sharecropper, this poor black man who was maybe one or two generations out of slavery, he stood up and testified against the men. Whoa. And, and the, the prosecutor was like, do you recognize the men who came to your house that night? And there's a famous picture of him standing in the courthouse pointing and to be a black man in Mississippi calling out two white men who were of some level of power, he was taking his own life in his hands at that point. Yeah. Um, he, he, It was it, the the jury deliberated for maybe 35, 45 minutes. Um, they came back, they found the guys not guilty right across the board, um, despite all the evidence, despite the testimony. Um, and those two men uh, got off and couple of months later they gave an interview um, to a journalist from look magazine and basically they told the entire story of what happened and confessed to everything and because of double jeopardy they could never be tried again wow. um, they they basically said that they hadn't planned on killing Emmett but he'd been uppity um, when they were talking wow. to him they just wanted to, to, talk to him. yeah Yeah. Yeah. Um, And they wanted to make sure he knew how to, how you don't behave in the South if you're black.
0: There's a few before. Okay. I have a few. (laughs) I have a lot of them. I have one thing I didn't know that I, I don't know how I didn't know this, but I didn't know that it was very clear who did it and that they went to trial for some reason in my version of the story that I'd always heard. It was like, we're all pretty sure we know who it was, but no, I didn't realize it was that overt, like, nope, they went to trial. They, all the people around Emmett Till's family said no is these two people. That's insane. Um, one thing about that, by the way, yeah. at the trial, when the, when the defense attorney
1: was doing his summation, he looked at the all-white male jury and he said, I know that every last Anglo-Saxon one of you will come to the right decision, basically saying, you're white and you're in mississippi and you are not going to find another white man guilty for killing a black person in mississippi so pulled out race at that point like it's it's not that long
0: ago yeah no yeah and like i feel like no one no one ever has good intentions who refers to white people as Anglo Saxons. I'm just gonna right, say that's like right. a random part, but it's like I've never heard anyone refer to someone as Anglo Saxon and yeah. not be like, I think you're part of the clan. But yeah. um that's yeah. And I imagine I mean the prosecutor, right, is probably the estate or like yeah. it's just an assigned, like, you know, their family's not paying for a lawyer, like right. and that's so these are a few things that like tying in some other aspects of history to the story, one is like the great migration is something i think about a lot when i think about emmett till right because the great migration is this moment in the 1900s 1910s 1920s when a lot of african americans leave the south they go get in factory jobs especially during world war 1 they end up in chicago harlem detroit and so to me it's so interesting cuz emmett is of that first generation that that had this different, I mean, obviously there had been free African-Americans in the North before, but he's really of that first generation. It's almost like a case study of you take the same family and then you separate kids and one kid stays in the South and one kid grows up in the North. Yeah. And not that the North was a great place still to, to be black when you were black either. But I think that just really shows even within one generation how much different it was that he th- he just didn't seem he to understand heard. the severity of what heard. it was like.
1: Right. He didn't know how to behave um, as a black kid, how to behave as yep. a black kid in the South in the 1950s and just was a kid and got killed for it. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's the idea that, that again, his cousin is like, you don't talk to white women. You don't, you don't do that. You don't say that you don't act that way that, that his cousin grew up understanding that and who was the same age, who was 14 years old and already knew that somehow he was perceived as lesser than.
0: Yeah, and, well, I'm and, sure you'd and, had that conversation, right? I mean, you, ha- you hear black families talking all the time about the talk when they have to have the talk, especially with their sons about right? like, hey, look, like these are some things you just can't do out in public. These are, if you get pulled over by the, the police, here's how you're supposed to act. Um, and it's like, yeah, that's one of the things Okay, to lighten the mood a tiny bit, I'm going to make a comparison to the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, which yes. is that there was that episode of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air where um, Carlton and Will are driving their dad's friend's really expensive car, yeah. and they get pulled over, and then they have this whole debate about why they got pulled over, right? And it's like Carlton, who's grown up in Bel Air, is like, no, they just were thought we were lost, um, and Will's like, no, I know exactly why we got pulled over, yeah. right? It's exactly. sort of it's that distinction. Um, But yeah, I just think, hmm. yeah, this conversation, too, about like one of the reasons, too, why I'm glad that we're still talking about Emmett Till is, for example, even like John Lewis, who we're going to talk about later or next, is that like, you know, he has described multiple times, he said like Emmett Till was my George Floyd, right? Like for the things that are going on right now, like Emmett Till, like you didn't have social media, you didn't have Facebook video, where you could see a black man being brutalized But so it's also, like, I think the Emmett Till story is just as much to the Mamie Till story, right, of Emmett's mom. Because, like, Emmett Till was unfortunately not the only person that happened to, but it's, like, his mother having the strength to say, like, no, I want everyone to see exactly what happened to my son, is that on its own is, like, a civil rights act, you know?
1: And and those photographs were the George Floyd video of the day because i think what we saw after George Floyd and and what we saw with the momentum in the black lives matter rallies over the last couple of months is white people getting involved and people of other races it it moved out of being a black lives matter moved out of being a black movement to a civil rights movement to to there are a lot of a lot of people of a lot of different races, ethnicities, religions, genders, who are who are standing up for this Black Lives Matter moment because it's not just about Black lives, and even if it were, that's enough. Yeah, um, that that everybody saw how George Floyd died, and everybody saw the injustice of it, and I think the same thing happened with Emmett Till that when when his mom Mamie Till had the open casket and she invited in photographers people around the country were like oh my gosh i mean i've i've heard about the south but now i'm seeing it and and i've heard what
0: it's like to be black in the south but now i see this kid i mean how 14 year old boy that's the thing it's yeah. sad to say but it's like first of all i mean most of white society in the south sees 14 year old boys as full-grown adults that are to be feared which is insane but um The other question I'm curious about just as like almost a thought experiment, because if 1955 is when the Montgomery bus boycott is going on, right? Like that's when, I mean, that's when Rosa Parks refuses to move and Dr. King is rising and becoming um, sort of the voice of the movement. And I think we like to tell the story that that's what sparked the model. I think we like to tell the narrative where we talk about Rosa Parks and we talk about Dr. King, because those are less sad. You know, it's like, oh, a nice Let's be honest, lighter skinned, lighter skinned woman who worked for her church and she just refused to move and no one then brutally murdered her. And I wonder, though, to what extent in the 1950s was Emmett Till way more of a catalyst for white people than Montgomery.
1: And, and that's why that's why I always kind of start this unit with Emmett Till that I I didn't grow up. I mean, I grew I've grown up in Texas and I don't remember learning about Emmett Till in high school. Um, and I don't know if that's a Southern thing. I don't know if it's just, you know, a time of when, when I was in high school. Um, but I, it's important to me to teach him at Till. And it's important to me to make sure my students understand that the civil rights movement has this long and, and in-depth history. But when we're talking about the modern civil rights movement, it, it doesn't start with Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. It goes back a little bit before, and I really think that, that the injustice of, of Emmett Till's murder helped open the doors so that, so that there, there was mobilization. The NAACP was doing things in the South and they were, they were organizing and they were starting the movement, but, but the acceptance, I think, and the understanding of really what the modern civil rights movement is about, you saw it in those pictures of Emmett Till. Yeah. That it's it's not just it's it's not just about one thing. It's about the entirety of what it means to be black in the South. And and now it's what it means to be black in America. Um that, 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 that is there is a whole separate set of conditions and circumstances and rules that are unwritten but understood that are dividing us. Yeah. I think that it's it's important for everybody. There's a great documentary on it called The Murder of Emmett Till. There's a book called The Blood of Emmett Till. Um, it's important for people to understand what happened and who he was to really understand the context of today.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I was thinking about it and I was like, well, I'm pretty sure I learned about it in high school because I had you for US history.
1: <laughs>
0: so I'm pretty sure I learned about it. I was trying to think of like when I first learned, I was like, it was probably in Catholic so. It
1: probably in AP US history.
0: Yeah, yeah, so thank you.
1: talk about John Lewis, who just, just as a segue, when I was, when I was at the Lorraine Motel five days ago, whatever it was, I had this moment where I, I just sort of stood there to take it in because, because I'm, I'm standing there right in front of the hotel, the balcony that has the famous picture where Dr. King's body is on the ground. And and all of his people, including John Lewis, they're standing there and they're pointing in the direction where the shots came from. And, and it, was, it was sort of, I'm getting chills talking about it because it was this surreal moment of John Lewis just passed away um, a month, two months ago. And even, even at the very end, I mean, there's that famous picture of him standing on the Black Lives Matter mural in Washington, DC. And he was probably a month away from death at that point. He was still fighting for civil rights until the very end. And I'm standing at the point where Martin Luther King killed was killed in 1968. And to know that John Lewis straddled that, that he was in both of those places, its it it's just this life well lived of service and dedication and refusing to give up the fight, which I think is just so worthwhile and worthy of all of the things all of the good things
0: yeah i totally agree and i also like you know i also take i'm i think a little more cynical and i take the cynical approach too of like god how infuriating to be yeah. you know you know to be at the end of your life and be looking around going have we really come as far i mean obviously we've come I far, fighting this battle yeah but yeah i think that's what we're starting to see you talked about when we were talking about emmett till and this like motivating people who could finally see what's happening. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's why John Lewis is just fascinating too, because yeah, his life reminds us of how not long ago that was. He was the reminder. So that's why, right. Congress called him like the conscience of Congress. He was there just as this living reminder. I would say nobody, but I will say almost nobody even dared to ever (laughs) speak ill about him or, or say anything because he just like, what could you say to someone like John Lewis? Um, and so, yeah, he was born, let me see. He was born in 1940. So he was the same age as Emmett Till. Um, he was born in Troy, Alabama, third of 10 children. They were oh, share, yeah. sharecroppers as well, right? So that ties all the way back to the reconstruction era. Oh, of that, Yeah, like you'd, you can't go get your own land. Often you're prevented from being able to buy land. And so you basically just have to rent out the land often from the person that had enslaved you. Um, and you're kind of stuck in this constant cycle of debt um and And so
1: we're able to make enough money to leave the land but but you have to like you're stuck there because that's the only thing that you have to provide for your kids
0: it's feudalism it's essentially like serfdom or something right where um and so it's one of those where then they get stuck in this cycle and a lot for a lot of people they're probably looking around going how is this really much different than before 1865 um, and so he was born in 1940. So he was born in Troy. He he grew up, it sounds like mostly in like a, a very black community because he says by his own story that I think in the first, maybe 10, 10 or so years of his life, he'd really only interacted with two white people ever. Um, and so to me, I think this is important because right, like that first decade is your, that's your formative years where you're establishing the norms, right? Like you're establishing what's normal and what is to be expected. And so even though he grew up in Alabama, in in the Jim Crow South, he also kind of uniquely grew up where he probably didn't feel like a victim of oppression very often, right? Everybody
1: looked like him. And and there
0: wasn't this like inequality. It was, you know, it's like you talk to people who grew up during the Depression. They're like, well, I didn't feel poor because everyone was poor, right? And (laughs) that's what my grandma says. So um, So my grandma
1: said, my dad said that.
0: Yeah, kids, she came in to talk to our class, and all the kids were like, how did you do it? And she was like, I don't know, it's just what, like that. All my friends only had one pair shoes, too. It was fine. So, um, so yeah, so then he starts venturing as he gets a little bit older, like pre-teens kind of. He starts venturing into the main part of town, and he wants to go to the public library, and it's segregated. And he starts to really experience this. Um, and he has said, right, that Emmett Till was his George Floyd. And you can totally see why. They were the same age. Um, and so when he learned about Emmett Till, this is the same time Within within that year that the Montgomery bus boycotts were starting in his home state where he lived. So he's hearing and seeing the photos of him at till he's also like in his home state hearing about the boycott and starting to hear Dr. King on the radio. And so he says that like 1955 was when he became, you know, mobilized or decided he wanted to dedicate his life to civil rights. He applied to go to Troy University and was denied because of his race. And this is the part that I think is adorable and also amazing is that he wrote a letter to Dr. King and was like, this seems unfair, what should I do? And not only did Dr. King write back, he like invited him to just chat, right? <laughs> so like, yeah, he was like, well, let's just talk about it. So um, yeah, Dr. King was his college counselor. Right. And That's basically me said,
1: my, my mentor when I was in high school, no big deal.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, you know, why'd you, why'd you decide to come to Fisk University? Well, a guy named Dr. King told me to, so I thought- <laughs> You
1: may have I, heard of him. I don't know.
0: I don't know, whatever. Um, and so he, um, what, what Dr. King says is basically, he's like, look, you can sue the school and, and the NAACP will support you. We could try to make this a test case for trying to end these sort of practices in on colleges. He's like, but you're putting yourself and your family at risk, right? It's like the story you told about Emmett Till's grandfather- Right. on the stand calling out the white men who who killed his son. And so um, John Lewis eventually decided to instead go to Nashville and go to Fisk University, which is a historically black college, right? Those were created in the days of Reconstruction, um, where it was sort of this safe space where right. black people could could go and learn and get an education. And
1: higher education, right?
0: Yeah. So he goes to Nashville and then he immediately like hits the ground running. He's one of kind of the founding members of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And tell me if I'm wrong. To me, the way I explain it to my kids is I'm like, the two, to me, the two most important organizations in the civil rights movement are going to be the SCLC, right? The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is kind of the adults, although they were all so young too. And then you have SNCC, which is like the college students. Am I missing another group? Well,
1: um, and, and I think those two are also kind of localized in the South. Yeah. I think later on in the 60s, when you have the Black Panthers, um, that's out in Oakland. You have Malcolm X's group in New York City. Um, in the 60s, the civil rights movement kind of goes national. Yeah. Uh, but in the 50s, it's, it's still somewhat localized in the South. And so, like you said, SCLC is Dr. King kind of leading the adults, but it's in the South um, SNCC is the student organiz- organization, side of things. It's also kind of located in the South, but they also have the same agendas. So the idea of nonviolent protesting, whether it's sit-ins, whether it's marches, um, whether it's, you know, protesting against interstate busing by riding the buses or sitting in, in white areas and bus stations. But when it goes national, Um, you have the more violent side, the more violent faction, um, with Black Panthers, especially, I think where it's more, you know, they're, they're wearing camo fatigues and carrying guns on the street and it becomes more militant, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a conversation for a whole other day, but yeah, I'm fascinated because I'm fascinated by Malcolm X, especially. I like talking about him. He doesn't get talked about as much as I think he should, Um, And because I I think it's an interesting at least thought experiment of like, you know, some of those groups were just saying, well, how long do you want us to wait, right? I mean, that's one of the things I had an amazing professor in grad school named Dr. Ron Johnson Uh on black history and he um, did you have Dr. Johnson too? I didn't. I didn't. Oh, okay. I, d- I just realized I thought about it. I was like, oh, you went to Texas State too. He's so <laughs> inspiring. And he, um, he just really hammered home. Like we read a lot of Dr. King's books and was just like, this is so radical to go around and tell people in the South, like, no, you should actually love the people who are oppressing you and you should show them love and you should not fight back. And it's one of those things that we just take as so like, well, yeah, okay. Nonviolence and civil disobedience and they're bold words in the book. And it's like, that's an insane thing to ask people to do, right? It's so much, exactly easy. It'd be so much easier to be like, yeah, let's just arm ourselves. And I, I get that argument too, you know, and it's like, it's insane.
1: When I was, when I was at Central High School, so I, as I was coming back on this road trip, I stopped in Little Rock at Central High School, not planning it, but coincidentally on the anniversary of, um, the day that the Little Rock nine, the first nine black students at Central High School were supposed to go to school. Um, it was the first day of the school year. And I didn't even realize the timing of it. I think about what those nine black high school kids, you know, they're they're 14 through 18 years old and what they went through minimum for a year, and some of them for multiple years because they came in as sophomores or freshmen or whatever, but they had food dumped on them. They were pushed into lockers. They couldn't go to the bathroom by themselves. They they would have teachers who would try to sabotage their their grades and their their academics and they just put up with it and and very rarely you know occasionally they fought back because how could you not but yep. just the idea when i think of when i think of these moments in in especially the southern civil rights protests of nonviolent protesting and and just taking it, whether you're at a sit-in and you get food dumped on you or ketchup and mustard squirted on you, or you're in a march and, and they're, they're launching, you know, police dogs at you or fire hoses and you just take it. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I don't, I don't feel like I have that in me. I don't feel like I have that kind of strength and that kind of courage. And it's so inspirational.
0: Well, this is the thing too, that I think we've forgotten, right? Is that like, The whole point of civil disobedience was to break the law, right? It was like, we think this law is unjust. And so we're going to break it. So this is the thing that kills me today is like, you hear people talking about like, well, they weren't supposed to be at that part of town. So then, yeah, violence erupted or whatever, at at current like protests. And it's like, you're forgetting the whole point, like non-violent doesn't mean totally legal. You know what I mean? Nonviolent doesn't mean, um, doesn't mean so that property doesn't get destroyed. It means like you're not going to fight back and try to harm the people who are harming you. And so, yeah, I think it's something that gets lost in that narrative is that like Dr. King's whole thing was like, yeah, go break the law because the law is unjust. And we need, we need to just use our body with nothing else. All we have are our bodies. And so we can use our bodies to do that. And so John Lewis was like a convert to that right away and really was probably the most dedicated just by the length of his life and career to that. So when he becomes a student in Nashville, he organizes the sit-in movements there, which end up integrating the, all of kind of the lunch counters and that sort of thing in the city. Um, He's also one of the original 13 freedom writers, right? So he, in 1961, right? He's one of the 13 of these, there were seven black people, including John Lewis and six white people, who just got on buses in Washington D.C. and rode it all the way down to New Orleans, um, so that I guess the idea is right when you reach the point or reach the state line when now it's it's supposed to be segregated, you are now breaking the law, um, and so they did that as sort of a push to um, integrate. Especially, tell me if I'm wrong. To me, the the rationale for that, which is really smart, is that the federal government can step in if it's interstate commerce, right?
1: Right, and and what they were they were protesting. These are these are different from the city buses that Rosa Parks was a part of that protest. Mm-hmm. These were essentially protesting, the Freedom Riders were protesting the bus stations. So they would arrive across the state line in the south from Washington, D.C. or wherever, and they would be forced to go to the blacks only section. Um, and and so it's, it's not just the interstate buses, it's the bus stations they were firebombed. They were beaten. There, there's famous photographs of, of John, John Lewis bloodied um, getting off a bus where he was just immediately attacked and beaten. And, and again, just to take that, just to say this is, this is, this is an immoral law. This is an unjust law yeah. simply based on a person's skin color.
0: I think, too, it's also so smart, right? This is the thing also that I think people don't understand is how, like, coordinated and organized and intelligent these protests were. We like to think they were, like, flash mobs of, like, oh, I guess we're all just not going to leave. It's like, no, you have meeting after meeting. Like, the only thing I've seen that has come close to that is when I saw those kids from Parkland, like, sitting down and organizing the March for Our Lives. I was like, "That's, that's what they did, right? It's like, you sit in rooms and have boring meetings where you're discussing and debating strategy, and you have to make phone calls, and you have to, like do all this work, which to be clear, that was mostly the work of Black women in the civil rights movement, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And so, And then you get on the bus, and it's like the, the intelligence to go, OK, well, let's be strategic. The, fe- the federal government can't say this isn't our issue because they, by the Constitution, can regulate interstate mm-hmm. commerce. We're going to cross state lines. Like, it's, it's smart. And again, you're still putting yourself in harm's way to be driving up to a bus station and see right. mobs of people, police and civilians, ready to just beat you. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying to willingly
1: put yourself in a position where you know you're going to get attacked and you do it anyway, because it's the, it's the right thing. It's yeah. I'm just, I'm blown away by, by that kind of bravery.
0: Yeah. And so, so that, I mean, he goes on many, many freedom rides, right. And they do get some help from the federal government who is kind of supporting, but then JFK asks for what he calls a cooling off period, which I'm like, I'm sure. Sure didn't go over quite well with you know black Americans are like oh don't tell me to calm down right that's the worst <laughs> thing you can say to people who are mad, um, but so then then the other event that he's most known for is the march on Washington right so and I should say the Freedom Rides he was 21 years old, um, which is just crazy to think about and so then he's 23 during the march on Washington and he's one of the organizers because he's now the chairman of SNCC and so, or, and so he's organizing along with Ralph Abernathy and Bayard Rustin and Dr King. And I should say they're all relatively young, too. I should look up. I mean, I know Dr. King in 1955
1: was like 24, 25. Yeah, I think he was in his 30s. The in early
0: 30s. He was like my age when he's giving yeah. his I Have a Dream speech. So it's it's fun to think about them as like the old guys, but they weren't really either, you know. And so, um, and so because he's one of the organizers, he gets to give a speech at the March on Washington and... You know, in the room back sitting behind the Lincoln Memorial in this like, I guess, little conference room that's back there, they were kind of getting ready to go out. And people were looking over his speech and people were scared because he was being pretty radical. He was basically saying like, this isn't enough. And like, we're He, he essentially was saying like, we're not going to wait forever. And there will be a mass movement. And he said things like revolution, which we're in the middle of the Cold War. That sounds communist, terrifying, right? And so, um, and so they multiple times were like editing his speech right beforehand to the point that John Lewis was in tears. He was like a 23 year old guy getting his paper edited by like the most important people in the world. And he's like, I I just want to get to speak. Like he was worried they were going to cut him at the last minute and say, you can't speak. One of the things he, he had in his, um, in his speech was basically saying whose side is the federal government on, right? This very sort of combative, like calling out Kennedy and saying like, you say you're with us, but, you don't seem, if you're not with us, you sort of are on the side of the oppressor. And they said like, we don't wanna anger the 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 you know the administration, right? There's this whole political element, which especially young people have a hard, not have a hard time understanding, but are just less, have less patience with, right? Right. right? That sounds really familiar to me. Like when I talk to students, they'll be like, well, why can't we do this thing about climate change? And I go into this rational political answer and they're <laughs> like, but that's all stupid. So, we should just do it anyway. Well-
1: And the thing about Kennedy is, I mean, what we know is that he is four months, five months away from getting assassinated, Mm -hmm. but he's looking at an an election year in 1964. And he's, he's starting to, so the March on Washington is August of nineteen or August of 1963. He's looking at his election and Kennedy never wanted to go against the white Southern Democrats because he, he, barely won his presidency in 1960. Yep. And he was afraid to go too hard on, on on desegregation and integration and civil rights because he would lose the support of those white Southern Democrats. And so he doesn't he doesn't really do a lot in the in the civil rights movement because he was afraid of his own political career kind of being the casualty of
0: that. Yeah, which uh, we'll just make a note of this an episode for another day is I want to talk about LBJ because I'm very fascinated by him. He's from where we we live. And I also don't understand, like, it's so confusing to me how, like, you're right that Kennedy was worried about that. But then LBJ is going to come from Texas and be like this. LBJ is fascinating. And we will talk about him because he doesn't
1: make sense with what like where he came from. Yeah. He's this Southern
0: white guy who is all in on civil rights. And yeah, that's yeah. that's a story for another okay. day. Pin it for another day. So after the March on Washington, I mean, really, like in John Lewis's life, right, there's sort of these three in, in this era of kind of the, the early to mid-1960s, right? So you have the Freedom Rides, um, then you have his speech at the March on Washington. In that time, too, he's also, within a year or so, organizing Freedom Summer to do this, like, voting drive um, down in the South. And then the March on Selma, right? And so that's when he really becomes a national celebrity because he is one of the people, one of the two people in the front of this march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And it's the first march, not the march where it all happened nicely and Dr. King was there. This is the first march where it turned into bloody Sunday, right? And so he had, he fractured his skull um he had scars on his head for the rest of his life from being beaten there's one of the most famous pictures from bloody sunday is of him and it's to me one of the most eerie parts of the photograph this might seem trivial at first is like you can still see he has his backpack on so like his famous photo is he looks like a college student i mean at that point maybe he'd graduated but he's still in his young 20s and he's walking with his backpack Kind of like thumbs hooked in the way you walk around with a backpack across the bridge and then the next photo you see is it's clear it's him because he still has it on and it's just um yeah and so he and he was one of those that really um also fought to a, kind of allow dr king to then come and participate in the second march on selma full disclosure right. some of this information is coming mostly from the movie selma but it's a really it's a really good movie. For um, is that there was there was sort of this debate about well well where was he the first time right Dr King it was it was I think he I think he'd been advised it was not safe for him okay. to be there which I guess could be said of any time but I think there was some frustration that Dr King wasn't there on the first march okay. um, but then of course he was the second time when they had they had eventually gone and kind of gotten permission or tacit permission from the government. Um, and so then they marched successfully, which kind of among other things leads to the civil, wait, the Voting Rights Act is 1964, right? And then the Civil Rights Act of 1965, is it flipped? It's flipped. It's flipped. It's it's flipped.
1: It. Mm-hmm. Civil Rights Act is the big umbrella one in 64, voting rights is 65.
0: Yeah, um, and so he's, a, I mean, he's he's there. He's there at all. He's like the Where's Waldo of the civil rights movement. He's, For real. he's in That's all the places. Right. Yes. Um, and then, I mean, he, he's going to continue. We could do a whole other episode on his then career. That wasn't even his career. That was like his education. And then obviously he goes, he's, he gets really involved in continuing to organize politically. Then he gets on the Atlanta City Council. And then he runs to be a rep, um, representative in the U.S. House. And he's elected in the 80s, um, I think 1986. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, for for reference, if anyone wants to... Maybe feel old or young or whatever. He's been on the House of Representatives as long as I've been alive because I was born in 1987. So, um, crazy. So, this last month is, is the first time in my life that I've lived in a country where John Lewis was not in Congress.
1: Well, and, and you think about like your entire lifespan, he was in Congress, and, and that's not even really what defines it. That's the third act. Yes. I <laughs> mean, that, that to me is just, insane and, and honorable. And like you said, he started at age 17, I guess, like being involved with Dr. King. And and Dr. King was assassinated when I was one year old. So, so
0: I know I'm old. Um. (laughs) No, I wasn't saying wow for that. I was thinking like, Oh, that's interesting. I, because like I have this one year to like him, John Lewis being elected, and you have a one year to Dr. King. But
1: because because I say it and I'm like, oh, I am old. Because Dr. King to me is black and white photographs. I mean, yeah. it's like the the early civil rights movement is still a lot of black and white photographs, and and to think that John Lewis was a leader in the movement during the black and white photograph time, and now he's, he's just been gone for a month or two.
0: And he was on Twitter. Like the fact that he was been on Twitter isn't to think about that, to think about him, he was born to sharecroppers. He was the age of Emmett Till when Emmett Till was murdered. And yeah. then he had a Twitter account where he used Twitter to spread a message of social justice. Like yeah. I can't think of a more interesting span of a life. One month as he's in
1: stage four pancreatic cancer, one month before his death, he's still marching and fighting in the black lives matter movement crazy that that he has that level of passion and that level of dedication and that anybody is so so drawn to this movement that that they don't give up hope
0: like he never did not become, um, I mean, I'll be honest, like, cause it's such a bookend where you're like, wow, Emmett Till sparked this whole movement in me. Yeah. And then right before your death to be like, it happened all over again. Yes. Like, so many people would be so furious and disenchanted with the whole thing. And I just think it really speaks to, I mean, he really believed what Dr. King believed, right? What is, it's the arc of the universe is long, but it meant bends toward justice or something, exactly. or the moral arc of the universe. It's yeah. like this belief that like, okay, yeah, that's a really, that's a big setback, but like, we're still moving in the right direction. Yeah. And to also kind of wrap everything up too, he, when he was in Congress passed just a few years ago, he passed the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act. Which is
1: right, Till's.
0: Yeah, which basically, means that i guess the statute of limitation for like hate crimes or or whatever had been had gone and it said specifically for crimes committed against african americans before 1970 could could be reopened and so they could investigate some of these most of the people they then investigate and maybe find guilty are now dead um but there were one or two um the guy who killed jimmy lee jackson who I believe that murder was depicted in the movie Selma as well. I believe it's connected to, right, John Lewis's involvement in that. Um, his murder was, was found guilty and served six months in prison or something. But. Well, and
1: going back to the Emmett Till thing, so the two men, the two white men who, who were responsible for Emmett Till's murder, they were tried, they were found not guilty by this all-white jury. They got off scot-free, even though they confessed to it and described it and all this other stuff. The woman Carolyn Bryant, there was an investigation reopened into her role in the Emmett Till case. Uh, I want to say multiple times, and they could never bring closure to it. Um, but but she was never tried. I think she died maybe within five years, mm-hmm. um, and she was never tried for her participation. But she that that investigation into her involvement was kind of part of this that it never fully went away yeah wow arc of arc of
0: moral universe that it's like it takes a long time it shouldn't take that long but it's like it is one of those things where it's like if you if you not wait long enough but if you push long enough right um yeah and i think that's the thing so that's like my um i had my students read the essay that john lewis um, had published on the day of his funeral, right? So John Lewis published an essay. He sent it to the New York Times and said, on the day of my funeral, I want you to publish this. He asked his friend, Morgan Freeman, because if you're gonna have anyone narrate your letter, it's gonna be Morgan Freeman, Re- like you know, record himself reading it. And it's two pages. I mean, everyone should go read it, um, but it's this beautiful thing speaking to young people saying, George, Emmett Till was my George Floyd. Like I see you. I'm so proud of you. I was so motivated by. I mean, I guess the the optimistic way to say all the the sad stuff I've been saying about how frustrating he must feel. He also must feel very, very like motivated to think. Okay, now we have a new generation that's taking right. off with of this. Because there was a time. There were some decades where it kind of felt like we thought we solved it. We're all colorblind. And so on the other hand, like for him to die, but knowing that like his legacy was being carried on by another, a new generation of people, he's sort of like, my watch has ended. These are people who are are way younger
1: than I am, who are younger than you are, who are as passionate as John Lewis was in
0: the early 1960s and are now moving it forward. Yeah, it's sort of like John Lewis is like the guy that gives no one an excuse. Like no one has an excuse. It's like I'm too young. Well, he was 15 when he wrote a letter to Dr. King and yeah. got college yeah. advice. And then people are like I'm too old. And it's like, well, I mean, how right? How old was he when he just passed away? I guess I should look. I,
1: I have stage four pancreatic cancer, and I'm still gonna get out there and march yeah. and push and
0: yeah. no excuses. No, if right. that's the John Lewis rule. Is like no one is un is in, incapable of of doing that work. And I'll also just say that I think the way to think about you being born one, was it one year before Dr. King was killed or after? Um, is that it's really just evidence that the civil rights movement wasn't that long ago. That's, well, that's, that's true. true. That's, a, that's the other way to look at that. That was awesome. It was like we planned that out. And who knew? <laughs> we like wrapped it all together? Whoa, we're so good at this. Anything <laughs> planned? I don't know. Why have I been writing my podcast episodes this whole time? I've been the idiot writing them out, but.
1: Okay. I also have another idea for another topic. Oh, cool. The JFK assassination and
0: conspiracy theories. Yes, because that's something I actually, like, I know, I know, like, the really vague story of, like, maybe it was the mafia, maybe it was the CIA, and that's it. Do you know a lot about it? I do. Like, embarrassingly. (laughs)